Thanks for being here, you guys. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us, especially you guys who are here in person. It's Yay. fun to have an audience. Yes. Um, and I think more people are, I think we've got quite a few yes. people registered, so people will probably be coming in as... Uh, as There's like the, 600 people or something, right? No, for, well, not in, here in tonight. Person. Oh, yeah, no, in no, person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I, you know what I found out is I looked at, and I think we have like almost, I, I would guess at least a thousand people who what? were yeah. part of Masterclass this last week, which was really, really cool. Yeah. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, it's fun. But um, I, uh, I, I'm just more excited about the people who are right I in know. front of us, hey, to man. be honest with you. Hey, so, man. Yeah, what's up, guys? Thanks for being here. Um, okay, so we're going to get started. We are uh, in our second week of Matthew, and um, but before we do that, I feel like I should just I should just ask the question of the day. So one of the mm. things I do is uh, at our staff devos is I ask like what your high from the week was. All right, so like what was a highlight for you? Do you have any highlights for us this last week? <laughs> I have one. Oh, okay, I'll let her go first. And I'll think okay. about it. Go ahead. What was your highlight? I have. He's not here yet. He will be coming. But I have a 16-year-old son, and he got his driver's license. Oh, my, last that's week. my low. No, I'm just playing. My, I'm just no way. I'm just you, you can't have a 16-year-old. You must be the oldest uh, sister. Thanks, Cody. <laughs> yeah, 16 uh, years old. He got a no. driver's license. Okay. All right. What about you? It's just been a good week. I don't know. I mean, it's you got, all it's you all got good. A driver's license too. I finally, yeah, I finally. Yeah, I gotta put books yeah. to see, but yeah. I'm five nine, Cody. That's average height. All right, you no, keep talking like I'm. That's fine. Something else. That's fine. Uh, not average height in her family, by the way. Definitely not. Uh, her husband is six eleven. Tall. Six nine. Six, six nine. nine. Okay, my and her boys are all on their way. So They're all taller than me. Um, for me, the high is going to be so one. It's my wife's birthday today, so Aww. I have to say happy birthday happy to her. Birthday. No way she's watching right now. They are. Um, You're gonna make oh, another joke about yeah, her watching. hair extensions? Okay, yeah, we'll, or? Then I won't make any jokes about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And the the highlight will be because she's out of town for her birthday. Will be when she gets home and I don't uh, have the kids by myself mm. anymore. Okay, so that will be fantastic. All right. Um, okay. So those of you who are here uh, in person and those of you who are joining us online, I'm kind of watching all the platforms. And um, if you have any questions, please submit your questions because last week we had a ton of questions at the very end. And so I feel like I didn't, mm-hmm. we didn't get to save like enough time. And so please, if you have questions about the passage you've been thinking about throughout the week or anything, submit them now so that we can, um, we can be talking about them throughout the night. And, uh, and you can do that either through the text message, which you see on your screens if you're at home or here, you just raise your hand after one of these guys are done talking and, or you can text in here as well. Okay. All right. So who's up first tonight? Me. All right. Let's go. All right. Okay, how are you guys doing? Are you happy to be here? All right, well, we are happy that you are here. Okay, so this week we are looking at, if you guys remember, we talked that Matthew kind of has five sections in his, um, in his outline of Matthew. And so the first one was kingdom people. And then now we're moving on to his second di- discourse and narrative, which uh, kind of focus on the kingdom power, the power that is in the kingdom that he's proclaiming. So these are going to be chapters 8 through 10. So chapters 8, 9, and 10. And what we're going to see, I just kind of want to give you one thing to look for as you're studying these chapters, is you're going to start to see people's responses to Jesus. So these are going to become even more explicit next week. Um, Next week, it's all about how people are responding to Jesus, but you're going to start to see it this week. And um, I heard a, a talk on this that I just loved, and it was that people respond to Jesus three ways. They either, this is their minds, so they have either their minds are open their minds are blown or their minds are closed, okay? And, and everybody is responding in one of these ways to Jesus. So you'll see the people, the crowds are people whose minds are just blown. And the words that are used to describe that mind-blowing thing is this ecclesio and thumazo. I don't know. Does that sound right? Yeah. Okay, so ekpleso actually means like staggered. They are staggered by what happened. It just like knocks their breath away. And interestingly enough, that word is the word that is used almost every time after Jesus is finished teaching. Like they're astonished and amazed. This thumazo, hold on. What uh, I messed up on something. What? I forgot to tell them that the notes are available. Oh, yeah. They can follow along right now. Yes. So there should be below. You can download them. Yeah, we'll post them in the links even, just a little link that you can download the notes and you'll be able to see the boards like up close and you can write notes on them. Sorry to interrupt. Um, I thought that might be helpful. 
So this thumazo, which is like wonderstruck and amazed, um, that happens like when Jesus calms the sea. Like they're like, whoa, that's crazy. That's crazy. But this ekplesio is after Jesus is teaching and it just absolutely like you could knock him over with a feather. I just think that's interesting that Jesus's teaching does that. So be looking for these responses. So these people, they respond this way to each of the stories that we're gonna, gonna go over this week. And we're going to see this response, this ekplesio and thumazo and, and all of this uh, is really defined, I think, really clearly in one part of the chapter that we're going to read. And it's in 827 after Jesus calms the storm, the disp- disciples ask a question, what kind of man is this? That's the central question that we're looking at this week. What kind of person has this kind of authority to speak God's law as if it was his own law that he was making up? Um, What kind of, of person can do this? And so that's the central question we're looking at. And Matthew is going to give us um, nine miracle stories. There's actually 10 miracles in the nine miracle stories um, because one of them is a, you know, two for one discount. But but there's nine miracle stories, and these are going to be the evidence for who this guy is, what kind of a person he is. And the word that comes up over and over again is this word exosia. And you'll see it um, alternatively defined as uh, power or authority. And the way that, the definition that I really liked was the right. So the person who does this has the right to command these things. Who is the person that has the right to tell all of these different things what to do. You're in like I used to say when I was a kid, you're not the boss of me. Like only the boss of me can tell me what to do. And so who has the right to tell all of these things what to do? So the nine miracle stories are actually broken up nicely for us because Matthew's an organized guy into kind of three groups of three stories. So he has three groups of stories that kind of revolve around religion and culture. Then he has three groups of stories that revolve around the spiritual world. And then three groups of stories that revolve around like healing, uh, like a physical healing of a body. And in between those three stories are calls, okay? So there's two calls, and they're calls to discipleship. And so the first group of miracle stories, as I said, it revolves around kind of cultural expectations. So Jesus comes in and, he's, and, and his miracles that he, do, that he does basically say he has the right to command the cultural norms and expectations of the group of people. So the first story that we see is in uh, Matthew 8, 1 through 4, and it's the story of Jesus healing a leper. Um, the next story we see is Jesus coming in and taking a, um, a Gentile and healing him. It's, a, it's the Roman centurion, the story. You guys can read it. It's pretty awesome. Um, but he takes that person and he heals uh, his servant. And then the last story is the story of Jesus. It's in 8, 14 through 17, Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. And the thing that all of three of these stories have in common is each of the people in this story was somehow an outcast or someone who was unclean. A a good Jewish person would really never be seen in, a good Jewish rabbi would never be seen in a woman's bedroom, um, would never be seen conversing with a Gentile, and would for sure never be seen talking to a leper. Matt's going to get into that. But what Jesus does in these stories is he says, I have the power to command culture, and I have the power to decide that something that you think is unclean, I can make it clean. So that's kind of the theme of that first group of miracles. Then he goes in and he has this call in um, 8, 18 through 22. And um, it's, it's, they're kind of confusing verses, and we can get into them if you guys have big questions about them. But basically the summary of it is that discipleship is uncomfortable and it's costly. And he's going to get into that more uh, later on tonight. But that's the, the summary of that first call. The second set of stories all revolve around the spiritual world and and Jesus' authority 
to command the spiritual world. And so the first one that we see is the story of the disciples in the storm, Jesus getting up and calming the storm. And so you might not think that that's spiritual, but if you think about, you know, what were the, what's Thor, like the god of thunder, like they, their gods at this time were very related to the weather. If you were going to talk about a god, a lot of times they would use the weather to describe that. And so God, Jesus is saying in this, I have the ability to command the weather. I, ha- I can command the storm. Then we see him go and he interacts with some demon-possessed men. And Matt's going to get into that one a little bit more as well. Um, but he has the ability to uh, control the spirits with a word. Um, he, so he can control the spiritual word world. And then the last story is the story of um, nine, that's in nine, one through eight, and that's the story of the paraplegic, it's a paraplegic that's lowered through the ceiling by his friends. Um, Is it in this one that he's lowered through the ceiling, or is he just brought? I don't think it's this one. Okay, well, he's just brought. Okay, in Matthew, he's just brought. Um, But the key to this one is you guys might say, well, he healed him, and so wouldn't it be like a physical healing? But the key point that comes out in this one is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sin, that he actually has the authority to make someone right with God. And so Jesus has the authority to command everything about the spiritual world as well. He can take the things that are uncontrollable, the spirits, um, the, the weather, the, somebody's relationship to sin, and he can bring it under control. And I want to point out that in every one of these stories, you will see people responding with open minds, with blown minds, and with closed minds. And the closed-minded people are going to get more and more and more um, outraged and more and more violent as Matthew progresses. So then we have another call, which uh, I'm going to summarize by saying discipleship looks different than you thought it would. So you see John's disciples come, you see, uh, and, and start questioning Jesus for the, the way that he's acting. Um, you see him calling tax collectors and sinners. Um, and, and the summary of that is you all thought that discipleship was going to look a certain way, and I'm just going to tell you it looks different than that. And then we have our last set of miracle stories, which is Jesus's control, and I just have put here, of your body. Um, He is in control of people's bodies. Um, The first story is the story of the, the, you may have heard it before, but of the bleeding woman. Jesus is called to um, go to the bedside of a girl who's dead. Um, And in the meantime, a woman comes and stops him and, um, and, grabs him and, and is healed. And I just want to point out one thing, because I'd, I'd never seen it before I really studied it this time, that I, I think that these two stories have something really significant in common. And I think it's that Jesus is bringing life where there once was death. Because if you think of a woman um, who had the condition that this woman did, um, it was her body, um, which was designed to bring life into the world, was in a state where it could never, ever bring life again. And as long as she was bleeding, she could never, ever bring another human being into the world. And Jesus touched her, and he healed her womb, which is the seat of power, the power of life in in a woman's body. And so he brought her body um, back to life. And then he goes and he brings a little girl's body back to life. I just had to bring that up because I didn't, I didn't think a guy would probably touch that one with a 10 foot pole. So, um, there you go. He also brings sight to people, and um, he brings speech to people. And so he's saying, I can take what is broken, in, even in your bodies, and I can make it whole. And so the, the answer to this question, which is, who, what kind of man is this? Well, who has the right to command all of these things? And it's not explicitly answered, but it's implicit in the story, which is Only God has the power to command religion and culture. Only God can command the spiritual world, and only God can completely take what is broken and make it whole. So that's kind of our narrative part of today, and we're going to move into the discourse now, okay? So this is chapters 8 and 9, and then we're going to move into chapter 10, okay? And what we see as a transition between this is we see this part was the people's response to Jesus, and now we're going to look at and we're going to see Jesus' response 
to all of these people, to every single one of them. He's not only responding to the people with blown minds and open minds, he's responding to even the closed-minded people. He's saying, this is my response to you. And his response is that his heart is broken for lost people. He sees people wandering around and they're lost and they're like sheep without a shepherd and his heart is broken and moved with compassion. And so what he does is he calls his disciples together and he says, hey, there's all these lost people out there and a heart, there's a harvest. I see a harvest that is coming. So I would really like you guys to pray that God would send workers out into the harvest. And I think this is the absolute best example of prayer that like the most explicit and clear example of what God wants us to do in prayer is right here in um, 9, 37 through 38. Because what Jesus does is he calls the disciples and he says, I want you to pray for workers in the harvest. And I'm sure the disciples are like, okay, let's pray. We're going to get some workers to go. And then the next verse, Jesus sends them out. He answers their prayer for workers and says, it's you. It's you. If you see what God is doing and you pray about it, you better be prepared to go. It says that prayer, I've heard it said that prayer is thinking God's thoughts after him. Um, you know, God breaking your heart for the things um, that breaks his heart. And so, um, yeah, I love that. So uh, basically, I have up here the, the lost people equal a harvest. You pray, you better be prepared to work. So that's the why um, that these disciples are getting sent out on the very first missionary journey of recorded in the Bible. This is going to be the disciples' first missionary journey out into the world. They'll have many more for the rest of their lives, but this is the first one. So that's why they went. How they're going to do it, how they're going to go out on this mission is they're going to have delegated power. So they're going to take the, all of the power that Jesus has to heal people's bodies, um, to command the spirits, to do all of the, to, to make the unclean clean. They're going to take that and in Jesus's power, they're going to go out and just release that power on the world. The, the people that are going to do this are the disciples. So you see a description of the disciples here in the next little section in uh, 10 verses 2 through 4. And the thing that I want to point out is there's 12 disciples. They represent the 12 tribes of Israel. It doesn't mean that like, you know, Peter was from one tribe and Andrew was from another tribe. It just means there's, there's significance in that number 12. And the other thing I want to point out is that there's no I in team. So there's really not anybody in this description of the, the 12 apostles that is held up as greater or lesser, except for, you know, Peter's kind of pointed out first and Judas is pointed out last. Um, but there's really not a whole lot of distinction given to these guys, more, anything more than just the significance of the number 12 and that they're going out to carry out Jesus's plan. And Jesus gives them a mandate, a message, and a method. So the mandate is that they are to go to Israel, that it is not time for, the go, for them to go anywhere outside of Israel. Um, their message is that they are to preach the kingdom and heal. And their method is that they are supposed to go out and not charge for what they're doing, not expect anyone to pay them, but they are expecting people to come and, and help them, um, to provide a place for them to stay, give them food, all that kind of stuff. But it's a free, and they're, they're walking out in faith. And then he goes on to say, okay, here's what the result of all this is going to be. Because if I was in this situation and I had seen all of this stuff that Jesus had done and all of his calls and, and then I get this mission that he's going to give me his power, I would be pumped. I would be excited. We do this all the time here. We think like we're going to start this new program and millions of people are going to come and it's going to be the most exciting thing in the world. And instead, what happens is pretty much exactly what Jesus outlines in this next section, which is, all right, I know you guys are pumped. I know that this sounds super exciting, but I want, but I want to tell you what to expect. And the very first thing that he tells them to expect is death. <laughs> like, I just want you guys to know that right now, you're going to be persecuted. Even as you go out right now, you're going to be persecuted. And in the future, you are going to die horrible martyrs' deaths. Doesn't sound very fun. And, and it doesn't get a whole lot better um, because then he goes on, Cody kind of touched on this this week, and it was, okay, this is what you expect, and this is how you want to, I want you to respond. 
I, I have a list here of each, he goes through a set, each of these sections right here are kind of like a collection of anthologies. They're almost like a couple paragraphs. You can see them. They're hard to like break up. And so I broke them up for you. Um, and you can look at this, the specific breakdowns in the notes. But, um, but the next little section is the response to all of this death and persecution that's going to be happening. And he says, don't fear and then do this. So each of them is going to have, each little sentence in there is going to have a don't fear and do this. So the first thing he says is don't fear people. Don't fear the people who are going to persecute you, all that kind of stuff. Do go out and preach. Just keep preaching. Don't let that fear hold you back. The next thing is he says, don't fear death. Instead, you need to fear God. Um, you don't need to fear death because God's got the end of all of this instead. In, in but you do need to fear God because God is at the end of all of this and he is going to be sitting in judgment. And then the next one is kind of the opposite, which it says that you shouldn't fear God. And I think what that's meaning is really don't be afraid of God. Um, don't be afraid because you can trust in God. Um, do trust in God. And that's the, the every, well, look at, we got like disco party going on party. up here. Um, that you can trust God, that he knows every hair on your head. I've lost Cody. <laughs> He's just never coming back. Things, Looking at know? the light. <laughs> Cody and Matt. I feel like I'm floating. Hey, welcome to the warehouse, guys. Okay. Uh, and then the last little part of this section basically says if you do these things, if you give in to fear and you fear people, you fear death, and you fear God, Jesus is going to disown you. Um, but if you don't fear, if you, do, if you do preach and you do fear God and you do trust, you are owned by Christ. You, you have stepped into his kingdom and what he wants you to do. The next two section is the first, the, the, the next expectation you can, can expect is that there will be no peace and that there will be a sword and that every single loyalty in your life needs to be less than your loyalty and your love um, to Jesus and the cross. This is the take up your cross and follow me. And then the last little section um, says one, finally one good thing that they can expect you can expect some people, there are some people that will welcome you. Just a couple, but they will welcome you. And, I, and Jesus says, I want you to know that when they welcome you, God is going to reward them for it. Because when they welcome you, you are, that's an equivalent sign, I think. I think, I, I don't know. I have to look at my husband. Is it an equivalent sign? I think it's equivalent. It's not. My kids are shaking their heads. They don't know. I, to me, it's equivalent. You are the equivalent of Jesus hey, to them. You live your truth. Thank okay. you. Yeah, that's the way it goes. Okay, so that's it for me. That's my whole section. That's oh, eight through ten. Thank you. Okay. Um, so let's uh, get to some questions, and then, um, Matt, before, so some of these questions you may address in your talk, so let's do the questions first, and then you can say, hey, I'm going to talk about that, and so we'll kind of, all right, so uh, let's start with you guys here. Is there any questions? Just raise your hand. I'll call on you, and um, we'll see what questions you've got. Do you got, oh, yes, right here. We got a microphone coming, so oh, hold on wow. just one second. Oh, we are so, we're super official. We too. Yeah, we are. Well, I was just wondering that um, when he did tell people to go out and, you know, uh, preach, he said, don't go to Samaria, forget mm -hmm. the Gentiles, just take care of Israel. Why didn't he want that to go to the whole world yet? Um, it wasn't time. It just wasn't time. He had every intention for it to happen, um, but he, there were some very specific way, there was a way that it was going to roll out. And so um, in the, it's the same reason that he tells certain people not to talk about him. You know, don't, don't tell anybody about my miracles because he knew it was going to blow up the whole world. Um, the other answer that I thought was really interesting is with the pigs. You know, when Jesus goes to and all the pigs die, he, that's not in a Jewish area. It's in, well, because there's pigs. Um, but it's in a, and they ask him to leave. You know, they're not ready for it yet. They're not ready for that power. And so, yeah, I don't know if so you want to add to that. Yeah, well, I have a question. What was the theological significance of, he says, go to Israel first? So I understand. So you're saying that his time wasn't ready in that he still had things that he needed to accomplish before he set mm -hmm. his face to Jerusalem, right? Mm -hmm. um, but there was also only go to the, the Jewish people 
what's the... It was to go to his family first. I mean, just like if you had news, right, you would go to your family before you would tell the, uh, uh, your extended family members, your friends, things along, uh, along those lines, right? So it was designed to go to his family first, his house, Israel, and then from there, the world. Yeah, well, so, and I, uh, I, maybe I can see where you're going. So God had always chosen Israel to be a light to the nations. And so whatever was going to happen, his plan of salvation was going to happen first through Israel, and then Israel was going to carry it out. So these 12 do what the 12 tribes of Israel were supposed to do. They, they finally carry God's light and his kingdom out into the rest of the world, um, the yeah. way that they're supposed yeah. to. So that, yeah, if you're not familiar with kind of the biblical narrative is God chooses Abraham, Abraham, raises up the entire nation, Israel, and he says, through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. And then he makes this promise that there'll be a Messiah, um, that there'll always be a, a king on David's throne. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of that. So it's been a story that's been unfolding for a really long time. And so this is kind of the unfolding, the last part of the, the yeah. story. Cool. Um, and if you miss that and you're like, I have no idea what all that means, don't worry about it. Okay. It's <laughs> fine. You just, you'll get the, you'll get the main points. All right. Any other questions here? Yes. We have a, yeah, we're coming around Hold with on. the mic. Yeah. It's coming. <laughs> so I just wanted, I just wanted to clarify. Uh, so when they went out, uh, was that during Jesus's uh, ministry or after? Or after, or were they actually saying something for after his yeah. ministry? Yeah. So it's interesting because in Matthew, um, he actually never talks about them actually going out. He says, "I'm going to send you out," and then he has this discourse. And then in chapter 11, we're going to see like we never hear about it, but we do hear about it in the other gospels um, that there was a time during Jesus's earthly ministry that he actually did send his apostles out two by two, and they did all of this stuff. Um, Matthew doesn't talk about it for whatever reason. Is this different than when he sends out the 72? I don't know. You're the smart one. I think, yeah. I think. He, you clearly want to answer that no, one, Cody. Come on, Cody, tell us. No, uh-uh, uh-uh. <laughs> All right, look it up. Uh, okay, what other questions do we have here? What other questions? I do have some that we've been, uh, have been texted in. Um, but anybody else in here? I want to give you guys first chance. Okay, here's a couple that we got in, and tell me if you're going to answer any of these. Um, this is a great question. This is one of the questions I actually addressed in the Daily Devos. Uh, Matthew 8.22 seems so harsh and out of character for Jesus. He's lacking compassion. Is there a chance this is something lost in translation to the English, and maybe his response mm. was something different? So I think what they're referring to is when the person wants to come and uh, follow him, and he says, let me go bury my father first, Let and Jesus says, let the dead, dead bury the dead. Wow, that seems pretty harsh. It doesn't seem yeah. like an unreasonable request. What's going on here? Yeah, so I think that the point of this is that, so I've heard, I've heard that that one has a translation, which is his dad is healthy and is up and about. And like, it's not like his dad is sick, that this could potentially be just someone saying, like you saying like, okay, I'll become a pastor once my dad dies. Mm. Like your dad's healthy. Like he's going to be around for 20 years. So he's just basically putting off the cost of, you know, putting it off. Um, so that's one, one thing that I've heard. But I think that the point is um, there's always going to be an excuse. There's always going to be a, a reason to put off following Jesus, that it would be more convenient. It would be more comfortable to do it tomorrow or at a better time. And what Jesus is saying is my call is urgent and it's going to cost you something. Um, it might cost you not being there for a family event, you know, a huge family event. Um, but you have to trust that it's going to be worth it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going through uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Christian classic. And he, in the first couple chapters, talks about this story. Mm -hmm. And he talks about when Jesus calls you to come, when you have the opportunity to follow, um, you, you drop everything and you follow in that moment. So yeah. you don't let anything stand in the way of you following him. And so um, I think the implications are pretty clear because we don't have just this guy. We have other stories where, you know, the rich young ruler, where he comes up and, you know, he asks, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you know, sell all your stuff and give the money to the poor and follow me. And he goes away sad. And so there's all these different interactions that Jesus has with different people, and they all have excuses why they can't follow him. And so Jesus is trying to, and, and maybe it's harsh, but it's real, is, hey, um, there's nothing more important than following me. Don't let anything get in the way. And that's why it's kind of in, in the Bible 
talks about the cost of discipleship. So I think you're, you're right on. Um, okay, uh, in chapter 10, we're introduced to the 12 disciples. Is the John mentioned here the one who wrote the Gospel of John? Yes. All right, that one was easy. Okay, um, Matthew, the character, isn't introduced until chapter 9. How was he able to write about the events preceding him meeting Jesus? And also, why did the Gospels not write in the first person? Um, they're in a third-person narrative. Seems like it would, be, uh, it would help more and be more believable and persuasive if they said, when I met Jesus, he did this. So there's a lot of questions there. Anybody want to, you want to jump in? You're the expert. No. You no, do it, Matt. Three you do years it. in Matthew. No, yeah. come on. What do you got? Matthew isn't introduced until chapter 9. How was, let's start with this. How was he able to write about the events preceding him meeting Jesus? Well, I mean, uh, all the way up until his interaction with Jesus where, where Jesus officially calls him, he's still being a tax collector and whatnot, um, he's walks with Jesus for three years, right? And, and then after that, he's still doing many years with the other disciples. So he would 100% still uh, know the stories by being involved in the lives of the other 11 and eventually a few thousand believers, right? So he was still, uh, uh, like, I know things about your life or your life or what happened specifically in your guys' kids' lives um, because of our proximity and nearness relationally. The same is, same is true with him. That's a perfect answer. Um, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I would just say in answer to the, the question of like why it's not written in the first person. Um, and, and I would say, you know, one, we can't impose like our ideas of what like a, a newspaper account would be or whatever. Matthew is putting together. So he's not writing this. He's not writing a personal testimony here. He's actually delivering a proclamation of good news. And he's using like... A, a very specific literary form. And so he's basically taking all of the stories that he knows, that he's seen, that people have told him about Jesus, and he's putting them together, and he's putting them together in a very specific reason. I mean, I, you know, I, we could say, like, wow, it's really convenient that you know, last week, all of the things that talked about all of the people who were following Jesus all happened in that order. And then this week, all of the, the miracles that happened about Jesus, they all happened right in that period of time. You know, Matthew, because they, they didn't. He's not telling the story even in chronological order. He's taking, in my section, the nine miracles that he's talking about. These are half of the miracles that Matthew describes. They're all in this, in the, the entire book of Matthew, they're all in this one two-chapter section. So he's taken miracles from other places and put them all together. So he's not necessarily trying to tell a chronological testimony. He's trying to persuade you of the good news of the kingdom, and this is the best way that, that he can do it, is to kind of put this all together that if way. If you really want to confuse people, and this is kind of uh, part of the fun, is um, we could start talking about how the Gospels were written and constructed. And so um, if we look at the synoptics, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all have very similar stories. And we talked about that a little bit last week. Mm -hmm. But um, Matthew and Luke have similar stories to Mark. So scholars would agree that they used Mark because it was probably one of the first gospel, or was the first gospel written, and they used some of his stories in order to write their stories. And then there was this other document called the Q document. And the Q document is a document that no longer exists that was probably an early gospel um, in which Matthew and Luke used for one of their sources as well. Mm -hmm. And so that would be also a reason why it's not a first person is because he may not have written all of those things initially. It may have come from this Q source. And if you really want to get confused. You really want to and confuse you have really like, confused. Mark yeah. is super short, and then Matthew and Luke are pretty long. And so Matthew basically expands most of the stuff that, that Mark has gotten. But then in uh, this, these chapters we're studying this week, he actually condenses what Mark says. Like every story from here, most of them are in Mark, but they're really condensed in Matthew. It's like he expanded all of these other areas, but for some reason, these miracle stories, we get like, you know, 50 words on something that uh, Mark gives, you know, 120 words to. Okay, so, so I'm going to have craziness. to, uh, we're going to have to hustle because okay, I still up. have, we're getting lots of questions, which I love. Let me just get through these um, really quick so that you can do your thing. Um, so one person says, can you explain what you mean by fear God? Do you want me to just take this one yes. really quick? Okay, so uh, there's good fear and there's bad fear. So when the Bible says, or when Jesus says, do not fear, um, he's talking about the negative kind of fear. He's not talking about a positive kind of fear. And so as a parent, 
I know that I am trying to instill certain fears in my kid, and naturally they've been given a gift by God to be afraid of certain things. Because if you lack the ability to fear, um, you will not last long on this earth, right? Like you, you learn to fear, like don't touch hot things, or uh, fear going into the street because there's cars driving by. Or so there's a, a natural fear, and then there's uh, an irrational fear. And so when he's talking about fear, uh, just point number one is he's talking about this irrational, unhealthy fear, the fear that can do nothing for you, okay? Um, the other thing that I would say is, growing up, my dad instilled in me a healthy fear of him. And so he, he said, like, look, I knew he was my best friend. I knew that he loved me. I knew that he wanted the best for me, and yet he wanted me to fear him, not because he's going to do something horrible to me or anything like that, but because um, I knew that if I got out of line, I would be disciplined, and so uh, that is a healthy fear. And there's a healthy fear that you can have because you know, because this person cares for you, this authority figure, there will be consequences to your poor decisions, which then equates to right. being afraid, right? Are you, are you still afraid, though? Uh, I can take him now. <laughs> I can take him now. Um, okay, uh, real quick. Um, actually, you know what? Why don't you jump in, and then I'll save some of these more questions as we get more in. They're going to have so many half. more questions oh, after that. Yeah, oh, yeah. We're, be, uh, we haven't, even, we haven't even tackled the hard Woo! stuff. Yet. All right, here yeah. we go. All right, so uh, this week, as you read Matthew chapters 8, 9, and 10, uh, if you're like me, you probably came across some passages that you were like, what on earth is happening in these passages? I mean, there's ones about uh, leprosy and this idea of clean and unclean laws. There's ones about demonic possession, which I imagine you're going to have tons of questions um, about. And I'm going to say I'm not an expert, all right? I've never been demon-possessed, so um, uh, even my mom as a kid. Anyways, um, she thought I was as a kid. Uh, and then there's ones about, like, Jesus saying, like, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword, right? And so what on earth is Jesus talking about? Well, what is a handful of these verses? Um, what do they mean? And so my job today, and Autumn helped me do this, is I came up with three uh, kind of questions that maybe I thought maybe you, you guys would have, because these are some questions that, that I had. And my job here today is just to kind of help lay some theological uh, webbing or, or an understanding and some insight in what these really mean. So just for the sake of time, we're going to jump right into it. Um, how, how long do I have, Cody? Oh, here we go. All right. Um, leprosy is the first, uh, our first kind of section. If you have your Bibles, turn with me into Matthew chapter 8, verses 1. We're going to start. The question is this, what's the big deal with leprosy and why did God make laws that made people clean and unclean? Let me read it for you guys. When he, Jesus, came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. As Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So why is this man in Matthew chapter 8 with leprosy calling himself unclean? And even furthermore, why is Jesus affirming his uncleanliness in some sense? To answer this question correctly, there's some things about leprosy that you really need uh, to know. The first is the Bible mentions leprosy a lot. It's actually the most, uh, it's a disease that's most mentioned in Scripture more than any other type of, of physical ailment or disease. It's mentioned 40 times actually in the Old Testament just alone. But the main reason that leprosy is talked about often in Scripture is it was used in the ancient world as a graphic illustration of sin's devastating and destructive power. In ancient Israel, leprosy was a powerful object lesson of how sin truly does destroy the possibility of relationships. Here's why. Leprosy, if you had it, it meant that you were going to be an outcast. You had to yell unclean, unclean wherever you went. And there were certain rules. We're going to jump into them in a second. But it meant always and forever, at least throughout the duration that you had the disease, that you were going to be separate for the rest of your life, living alone and disconnected from people. In the book of Leviticus, if you guys have your Bibles, you're welcome to hop there with me. I'm just going to read a few verses really quick because Leviticus is such a fun book. Um, in, in Leviticus 13, uh, we have the author, who's Moses at the time, um, kind of showing us that God gives some specific instructions on how to actually deal with leprosy. In fact, the entire chapter 13 and parts of 14 are literally dealing with leprosy and leprosy alone. Now, I want you to pay attention to these instructions because they have, and I'm going to use a churchy word, a theological term, Christological significance, meaning that these instructions are to point us forward 1,600, 1,500 years until the birth of Christ. They're going to show us something about Christ. So notice with me uh, Leviticus 13, uh, who a person with leprosy is supposed to go to. Leviticus 13.2 says this, then he, talking about the person who has leprosy, should be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priest, and the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body. So notice what the person's not commanded to do. Go see a doctor. So if you guys have like dandruff, like don't come talk to us because we don't know anything, right? But this is an interesting passage. He says, go talk not to a doctor, but talk to a priest. 
Now, the question that we need to ask is, okay, well, that's, a, that's odd. What, why? Could it be that God is trying to connect us, connect this physical disease to something maybe spiritual to teach us a truth about the condition of sin? I think the answer to that is yes. In verse 46, it says this, He shall remain unclean as long as the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling, the word here is tabernacle, it comes from John chapter 1, verse 14 as well, where it says that God made his flesh and became flesh in tabernacle, dwelt with us, continues and says, his dwelling should be outside the camp. So if you had leprosy forever and ever, you were supposed to live outside of your community. Actually, you couldn't even be in the same household with your family. Interestingly enough, as I read some commentaries, there was a rule in Jewish law that comes from Leviticus 14 that you weren't allowed to be in, within six feet of another person. And you thought that <laughs> we made that up. We didn't. Uh, it's 2,000 years old. I thought that was interesting. Another weird kind of rule is that if the wind was blowing, and I don't know by what, what metric they, dis, they determined when the wind was blowing, that uh, you had to be 150 feet away from the nearest person. And so for the rest of this person's life, because of their dirtiness, their uncleanliness, they had to live separate and apart from the people that they love and from other human beings. Interestingly enough, Matthew chapter 8 is Jesus' first miracle targeted towards another human being or towards another person. Now, uh, John 2 is the account of Jesus turning water into wine, his very first miracle. He's doing something hugely significant there, but he's also doing something hugely significant here in Matthew chapter 8 as Jesus heals, does his very first miracle as it's targeted towards a person. And I think we'd have to be, I don't know, almost poetically dim not to see what Christ is trying to teach us here. One thing I want you guys to know is that I've said this over and over again, is sin separates, right? Romans says, for the wages of sin is death. What is death? I've said this before. Death is a separation of things that ought not to be separated. What is physical death? It's our bodies from our soul. What is spiritual death? It's our souls from our creator. And so Jesus, by healing this man of this very specific disease, is showing that he and he alone, he and he alone can close a separation between us and God and um, make us clean. In the book of 1 John uh, one ninth says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness or uncleanliness. The second part of this is that God made laws that made people unclean really for the sole purpose of acting almost like a mirror to help people see their true condition. So when germ theory was, was, was created and microscopes and whatnot, uh, that didn't make the world dirty. It just was a window. It was a mirror. It gave us the, the actual uh, context and ability to see how actual dirty our world really is with viruses and bacteria and all of that. The same is with the law. The law doesn't make people dirty or unclean. It reveals to us our, the truth of our human condition. I've said this last week. I said this a few weeks ago when I spoke in Maine. It's that we're not mistakers who need a second chance. We're sinners who need a Savior. That's what the law's purpose was to do, was to show us that we need a Savior. Next question. Do you, do you want to pause or are you good, Cody? No, no, no. I, let's just get through and then... Well, Here we uh, go. All right, buckle up. Um, next part, super fun, demon possession. <laughs> this is going to be great. Um, what is the theology of demon possession? And then Autumn uh, added to this, and why did Jesus have to kill the nice little pigs? And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 28 says this. When he came to the other side of the country of the Gadreans, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass them, uh, uh, pass by their way. Behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us? I want you to highlight, O Son of God, have you come here to torment us? Highlight before the time. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. So there's a lot here. Here we go. Um, the Greek word here uh, for demon possession really means spiritual occupation of an unclean uh, demon uh, that has the capacity to influence one's life. So that means nothing to you yet, it's going to. The question is, is demon possession real? And the answer to that question is yes. Um, there are some believers who believe that demon possession is not real or that hell is not even real. It's called eliminationism or annihilationism. And I believe that Jesus believed in, in hell, so therefore we have to believe in hell. But I also believe here that Jesus is teaching us that he believed that demons were real as well. Now, I don't believe that it's like the way that Hollywood is depicted, where there's people crawling up walls and they're flying and they have like superpowers. Now, I don't believe that at all. So um, I do believe that Jesus uh, believed in demons, and this is something that, this is a passage in which he tells us how to deal with them. Three things I want to teach you uh, really quick. The first two are from this passage. The other one is not from this passage, but I think it's important that you know as a believer. Let's jump into the first one. The first thing I want to point out is that the demons recognized the authority and nature of Jesus, even when the disciples didn't. Autumn talked about this verse in uh, Matthew 8, uh, 27. 
Is it? Yeah, 827. Um, it's the account of Jesus calming the, the sea. So there's a, there's a raging storm, and Jesus calms supernaturally the waves and the winds. And then the disciples say this question, like, who is this man? Like, like the, even the winds and the waves obey him, right? They're wrestling with this, this question, what kind of person could do this, right? With this type of authority, with this type of power. Notice that the demons already knew who Jesus was. The second Jesus just walks up on the scene, they recognize him and they give him the correct title, son of God, because they have a correct theological understanding of who he really is, and that terrifies them. Now, demons are, are fallen angelic beings, and what this means is they have seen Jesus in his glory before his, 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 uh, his earthly ministry, I guess we'll say. It's called Jesus' pre-existence. And so they know the right things. They, they have a better uh, theological understanding of who Jesus is than you and I. But they have taken away their, uh, their hearts from him. And so they're under judgment. And what this means is that we can ultimately revere God in our mind, but not receive him in our heart. And that opens us up for not actually, one, being a Christian and following Christ, and two, uh, for spiritual warfare. Second thing, the demons knew their own destiny, and Jesus wanted to show everyone else what the intentions are for the demonic. Follow with me if you have your Bibles with you. Verse 29 says this, Have you, talking about Jesus, come here to torment us and then highlight before the time? See, these demons knew that their time was running out, that, that, that God has promised, and we'll talk about this in a second, to end all evil, to end any demonic influence, and they knew that one day Jesus would get rid of all of them, and they would suffer in everlasting torment. The second part of this is Jesus wanted to show everyone what the real intentions are of the demonic. So he put them in the pigs and notice what happened. All 2,000 of them charged against the hill, fell to their deaths and drowned, or were just crushed under the weight of them falling. So his point is the demons in the demonic realm, has, their focus is, is simple. It's to kill and destroy. John 10.10, 10, I used this verse last week. It says the thief, Satan, or the demonic realm come to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus says, but I've come to give life and give it abundantly. Third thing isn't from the text, but it's important for you guys to know. And the good news is Christians cannot be demon-possessed. Demon possession implies a sense of ownership, and Christians cannot be owned by demons since they've already been purchased by the blood of Christ, is what the New Testament says. It also says in the New Testament that we are, we are kept, we, are, we belong to Christ and Christ alone. 1 John 5, 18 says this, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. Here's the important part. And the evil one does not and cannot touch him. However, Christians have uh, can experience um, kind of, we're gonna, it's called demonic oppression. And what the dictionary definition of that is, is a demonic influence from outside the person. So there's no sense of occupancy. It exists outside of you. And so if I were to ask you this question, in what ways have you seen um, demonic oppression or influence on your life? You may have a more of a challenging time answering that question. If I changed the question and said, in what ways have you seen demonic oppression or influence in our world, society, and culture today? If, you guys, if I had to break you up into groups, you guys could talk for hours probably, right? See, the worldview of the Bible is behind influencing nations and empires and, uh, and movements are influences. And these influences are spiritual. The Bible is very clear that there is a world that is a seen world. That is the one that we live in. But equally true and equally real is an unseen world that is equally true and equally real. And it has the capacity to influence the real seen world that we live in. It's a world uh, full of angels and, uh, and fallen angels. Those are called demons. This is called the spiritual world. Now, to provide just a little more context, demons were once angels uh, who, who were in the presence of God and tried to topple God as king. In doing so, they tried to create a counterfeit kingdom and usurp God and place Satan in authority, and we know that they lost that war with God. And ever since, they've been trying to do the very same thing here on earth. A storyline in the Bible, not the storyline in the Bible, but a storyline in the Bible is anything that God creates, Satan fakes. Anything that God creates, Satan counterfeits, right? He's not a creator. There's but one creator, one title, and that's, that, that, that's, that's God, that's Jesus. And so anything that, that, that Satan, um, anything that God creates, Satan tries to fake, tries to counterfeit, and that is what he's been trying to do with this, with this world. What I want you to see is God has a kingdom in heaven. It's where you and I, if you believe in him, get to spend eternity with him, but Satan always tries to counterfeit this perfect place by creating his kingdom here. In the Old Testament, in the book of Revelation, um, and the book of Revelation, and parts of the gospel, this place was called Babylon. Babylon was a place that, uh, if I believe correctly, it was in, it's in modern-day Iraq, but, um, and it was in the story of Daniel. Babylon, when it's referenced in the New Testament in Revelation, is not talking about the same Babylon that exist in, existed in the world of Daniel. It's talking about a place where Satan's influence is the greatest. This makes sense and track with me really quick. God has a trinity, exists within a trinitarian nature, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Satan also has a trinity, 
Not in the same way, but a counterfeit one. The Father is Him, the Son is the Antichrist, and the Holy Spirit, its counterfeit, is called the Spirit of Babylon. The Spirit of Babylon, biblically speaking, is an entity, is a demonic um, being whose sole purpose is to increase and make Satan's name known, to make his influence the greatest here on earth. In the ancient days, the Spirit of Babylon was at work in places like Sodom and Gomorrah, was at work in cities like Nineveh, and was in whole nations like Egypt. In the last hundred years, the Spirit of Babylon um, is prevalent in places like Nazi Germany. Um, in today's uh, world, it, it, it's prevalent today as well in places like North Korea um, and other places like that. But the Spirit of Babylon, and I want you to hear this, is at work today. And it's in, in work in entertainment, media, human trafficking, large social agendas, and most certainly is at working in the area of education to indoctrinate our young with unbiblical views and ideas. If you have more questions about that, you can, you can, uh, you can ask the spirit of Babylon is at work in every nation, in every government, and, uh, and will continue to work until Jesus comes back. Genesis chapter 3 is where we learn that um, Satan and uh, the spirit of Babylon kind of get their career started. But in Revelation chapter 20, we learn that their, their, their uh, occupation, their career comes to an end. You could actually read the book of Revelation as what happens when God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom clash when they go to war. We like to think of this galactic war where, Satan, where, where God just barely wins, but that's not the case. If you read Revelation, God, without using an iota of his strength, conquers the empires, conquers Satan without using any strength. Satan is a created, limited being. God is infinite in nature. And so it's not this galactic war. It's crushing. Last question is this. What does it mean in Matthew 10 that Jesus didn't come to bring peace, but to bring a sword? I'm going to read a part of it, not all of it for you. Follow with me in Matthew 10, verse 34. It says this. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. Highlight peace to the earth. That's an odd phrase. I've not come to bring peace but a sword, for I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. It goes on to verse 39. There's tons here, but just for the sake of time, here's what, here's what you need to know. Number one, Jesus is not talking about a literal sword here. And you go, obviously. In fact, when Peter took up a sword to defend Jesus by cutting off the story, um, I believe is in Matthew 26. Uh, basically what's happening is there's a, a guy that grabs Jesus and is dragging him off. Uh, and Peter, I love Peter, is just so full of energy, pulls out his, his sword, tries to hit the guy in the head, misses, hits his ear, chops his ear off. Jesus does something so profound, so interesting here. He walks over, grabs the ear, supernaturally attaches it back to the guy's head, turns over to Peter and says, Peter, put, relax. Put your sword away. Those that live by the sword will die by the sword. And he is doing something huge here. He says, if you pick up arms in my name, you will cut off people's ears and they will not hear me. They will not receive me. That makes Christianity unique, very different than Islam, for instance. What he's saying here is that Christianity is not to be spread through conquest, but through compassion. And so, as we wrap up, here's the question. What kind of sword is Jesus talking about here? And why kind of this weird phrase that he uses, peace to the earth? Let me answer this first one, peace to the earth. When, when he says, I've, I've, come to bring peace, I've not come to bring peace to the earth, he's drawing our attention to his origin in heaven, his mission on earth, and his message. He has come, in some sense, outside of this earth, outside of the worldly systems, and this message is going to cut like a sword. It's going to be painful. Hebrews 4.12 talks about God's word being like a sword. It, it divides. It goes deep. And then the message, the message is the gospel. But he's also saying something about families here. He says, I am worthy of a greater affection and a greater allegiance than any member of your family. And so, if all of your members of your family respond to Jesus Christ in this way, then you guys are going to be at peace with one another. But if you have some people in your circle, people in your life, people in your family who do not respond to Jesus Christ in the same way that you do, they don't believe he's Lord, then that's going to cause some, some tension. That's going to cause some anger and resentment. And so what he's talking about here, and I'll hand it back over to Cody, is that if, I'll say it this way, your relationship with Jesus Christ has the capacity with people that are close in your life to cut those relationships like a sword because the truth of the gospel, in essence, is offensive. The exclusivity of it is offensive in nature. And that's kind of what he's talking about there. Wow. Yeah. Cool. That was good. So just doing the real easy light yeah, stuff you know, tonight. I mean, yeah. uh, Autumn's the one that gave me those, so thank you, Autumn. Demons <laughs> and exclusivity. Yeah, yeah. And anything else that you wanted to tackle tonight? Hey, you're the boss, man. You tell okay. me. Okay, great. <laughs> Woo! All right. Um, so let me, uh, I, I do have some questions that I've been getting online, but let me throw it to you guys first. Uh, if you have a question, go ahead and raise your hand. Um, I'm sure we are going to have some questions. Yeah, we've got uh, one right here. Um, go ahead. Hi, yeah, just curious about the demons and he cast them into the pigs. When, when he casts out demons, do they have to go somewhere into something else? 
That's a great yeah. question. Um, the first is, uh, notice his authority to do that. So demons can't possess or occupy anything without God's authority. The second is, the Bible doesn't give us clarity on what happens after that. So these beings are real. Um, I don't think they need to occupy a physical body, though, um, uh, like a human being or a potential animal. And so the Bible doesn't give us clarity on what happens after uh, the pigs die. Um, but yes, logically speaking, they would have to go somewhere, but we don't know, we don't know where that is. So it's a good question. So uh, um, one of the things I wrote down was, because this whole idea of angels and demons, and it kind of seems far out there, and like oppression and the exorcist, like uh, how do we even make sense of all this? Um, one of the books that was really helpful for me in imagining what this would look like, and maybe it's not as far out as you think it is, is C.S. Lewis's uh, Screwtape Letters. That's a good book. It's not, a, it's not theology, it's more imagination, and he kind of imagines what it would look like to have, if, if demons exist, what it would look like. And it gives you really good insight into how they would influence you. And it's not through these like super crazy like acts. It's yeah. more like just everyday things that you just think are regular occurrences. So anyway, I would read that book for sure. If you find this topic interesting, read C.S. Lewis, Free Type Letters. It's, it's one of our rooted plus books. Okay, cool. So cool. if you're so, in a rooted group and you guys get through all the rooted It's fascinating. Yeah. It is so interesting. So make sure you <clears> check that out. Okay. Uh, any other questions here in the room? Yes, we got another question up for here. And then if we have more, go ahead and raise your hand so we kind of know where we're going next. Okay. So. Okay. Kind of on those lines, if sin uh, is not allowed in heaven, it's a perfect place. And how did the the devil and the, the demons, how did they have the pride and sin of pride and all of that? Yeah. You should give him J.P. Moreland's uh, illustration. What's his, what's his illustration? You don't remember it? No. He said, is it possible? Because someone asked that when oh, I remember. The philo our philosopher J.P. Moreland was plate. here. Yeah. And he said, uh, he said, is it possible for sin to exist in heaven? Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah because we will still have free will. free will. But will we sin in heaven? No. Because we will see the glory of God, and we will see the destruction of sin. And so his analogy is, should I give this analogy? No, well, don't use the big words. Don't use the big boy words no, no, that he used. He no. used big boy words in our service. Did he really? He did. Okay. Um, he said it's like this, is do I have the, like, he, uh, I don't even oh, know the, if the, I want to go the, in there. The yeah, he one. said that if I go to the dog, <laughs> if I go to the park and my dog takes a, a big poop. dump on to, poop onto the grass, <laughs> Do I have the freedom to just get down and take a big old bite of that steamy pile? I do. But do I, am I going to? No. I am not because I see it for what it is. And yeah. so that was his whole, this is not me. I would never say something so gross or so <laughs> childish. Um, but that was the world famous philosopher J.P. Moreland. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, There's a second part of your question that I, I don't think we answered, which was about Satan and falling free will, things like that. But did that kind of help? I think, it, I mean, yeah. So, the, the, yes, so free agency, the idea that we can choose right, wrong, we can choose God or not, is something that will continually exist in heaven because by very definition of love, it has to be a, a free choice. God, by the essence, is a, is a character, is a, is a, uh, a we we'll use the term creature, he's not created in any sense, of love, right? It emulates for who, from who he really is. So by very definition, um, heaven is a place where free will is still open. I, I think the question, though, is how can, like, I think a lot of people have heard that sin cannot exist in the presence of God. So how could Satan, the essence of sin, be in God's presence? Well, notice that he was kicked out. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, the Bible actually doesn't have a whole lot of like insight into the origin stories of Satan. It says like, yeah. I saw him, you know, fall, fall from like, but that's all that we really know. So right. yeah. it's kind of interesting because we don't have a whole lot of background information about, yeah. um, you know, the accuser. So anyway. it, yeah, yeah. All right, we'll, we'll continue on because we only have a few more minutes left. Any other questions here in the room before I take some online? Okay, got it? Okay, uh, let me give you a couple that were online. Um, okay, this one, uh, there's, is there such an emphasis on the Old Testament prophecies and it ties into Judaism and Matthew more than any of the other Gospels? Was his audience more Jewish? And we actually talked about that um, last week is because Matthew was Jewish and he was writing to a primarily Jewish audience. He pulls a lot from the Old Testament, as in like, hey, this is the fulfillment of what we've been waiting for. Um, and so, yes, you're going to see heavily influenced um, with the Old Testament and Jewish culture and things like that. So, uh, next question. Um, okay, so about demons again. Um, are demons representative of the devil, or are these people suffering from like a mental disorder that Jesus somehow cures? 
And um, I think we kind of have gone over that a little bit, but here's, uh, there's no, this is me talking, okay? This is not, this is just my own thoughts, is um, it's hard to, and you said this, you use the words interchangeably. What's the difference between uh, demon oppression and demon possession and influence? And so there's not maybe a hard and fast line, maybe there is, I don't know, Um, but I think it's probably all of the above, is I think we're more influenced than we would like to to, to acknowledge in the West. Um, I was listening to a pastor who was in Uganda, very smart guy, got a PhD, and he says, you in the West don't understand the spiritual world like we do because you've suppressed it. And so you don't see the influences that the spiritual world has on the physical world. And, um, and so I think in the West, um, we don't give it enough attention, although there are some people who do. Um, and so I think that it could be mental illness, but we tag or we label things that are, are spiritual mental issues and things that are mental issues, spiritual issues. And so we got to kind of be careful with that a little bit. I don't know if that answered your question or not. Okay. Um, any other questions before we wrap up? Any other questions in the room? I want to make, make sure I give everybody an opportunity because we're going to end on time right now. Yeah. It is 7.30. We're going to end on time. Okay. Any other questions? Cool. Let me pray for us and then we'll, uh, we'll get going. Lord God, thank you so much for this opportunity for us to come and to just... Uh, to learn your story that you've been writing throughout human history. And Lord, we just pray that through this, we would learn more about you. We would have a deeper trust in you and a deeper understanding so that not only um, will we continue to grow in our faith, but we would be able to share it with the people around us. So Lord God, uh, continue to give us uh, insight, continue to give us the, um, the strength to be able to be disciplined, to continue to move on, and, um, and give us the knowledge, Lord God, that... Um, that we, uh, that we may be lacking as we try to dissect your word. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Same we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. God bless.